Repent, for the end is near. I'm actually saying that sincerely. I am not saying it ironically or sarcastically or comedically. Now, I have to say that because it is such a well-known saying in our culture. Repent, for the end is near. Of the last hundred years or so in America, there have been street pe preachers who carry signs and preach about the end times. Uh, it is so well known that it has become part of our popular culture. Uh, it was a meme before we knew that these things were called memes. If you do a web search on it, you get these kind of images, right? Uh, these kind of guys, uh, repent for the end is near. There's these memes, the end is near. Repent, the end is near. There's actually people who still carry signs. There's people, you know, sort of black and white photos, end is near. And of course, there are the cartoons. So here's Homer Simpson, ah, oh, the end is near. And he's clear, I'm sure he's not talking about Jesus, although it's been years since I've watched The Simpsons. And then, you know, there's also political cartoons and that sort of thing. Uh, this one, you can't really read it, but it says, the end is near. Uh, he's, he's saying the end is near, and, and, and uh, what are you? You're a climatologist. So, yeah. All right, so it's become a meme, and, and it's one of the things that is well known. But it really is a thing that we need to do. We need to repent because it is actually true that the end is near. And this is what the Apostle Peter is going to share with us today. Now, our studies have brought us to the uh, third chapter of Second Peter. Now, by way of review, let's quickly cover the highlights of chapters 1 and 2. Peter starts in chapter 1 by writing that true knowledge of Jesus Christ gives us grace and peace and, in fact, everything pertaining to life and godliness. God has granted to us precious and magnificent promises. In light of the good news of Jesus Christ and these promises and his power, we ought to work hard, be diligent, to live in godliness and love. Peter goes on to write that the things that he and the other apostles and witnesses have taught them, they should remember because they are true. He knows they are true because, number one, they were eyewitnesses, and number two, the prophets who came uh, centuries beforehand did not speak from themselves, but rather were moved by God and spoke the very words of God, breathed out by God. False teachers, on the other hand, make up cleverly devised tales and deceive people. The last two weeks, we have studied in chapter 2 that God has the power to punish them and will eventually punish them, just as he has punished other evildoers in the past. Peter goes on in chapter 2 to describe the false teachers, and he pulls no punches. He calls them animals, stains and blemishes, springs without water, Mists that don't give life-giving rain. Slaves of corruption. And he tops it all off by calling them dogs and pigs. Two images that are particularly offensive to Jewish culture. In verse 2.22, we read, It has happened to them, according to the true proverb, a dog returns to its own vomit, and a sow, after washing, returns to wallowing in the mire. That brings us to chapter 3 and number 1 on your outline. So reading with uh, together verses 1 and 2. This is now, beloved, the second letter I am writing to you in which I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the words spoken beforehand by the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior spoken by your apostles. Okay, first of all, notice the change in tone. Right? Let's explore that for a moment, uh, in a moment. But more importantly, who is the Lord and Savior? Well, it's Jesus Christ. It's Jesus of Nazareth, a real man from history. But not merely a man, he's actually God. And God is all-powerful, all-knowing, present everywhere, okay? altogether holy, altogether just, altogether loving, and merciful. God is one God in three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And Jesus is the second person of this trinity. He is the Son of God, the God from all eternity past, present, and future. And he also took on an additional nature, 
a human nature in addition to his God nature, so that he is both fully God and fully human. He is also the Christ. That's why we call him Jesus Christ. That's his title, Christ. It means anointed one, and it is a translation of the Hebrew word for uh, Messiah. Okay? Messiah and Christ mean the same thing, anointed one. He is the one who is anointed, chosen to play a central role in what we call redemptive history, God's great rescue plan for all of humanity. And he is also Lord and Savior. He is Lord because he is God, and therefore he is to be worshipped and obeyed. And he is also Savior because we need saving. We need saving from sin, and we also need saving from God himself. We have all broken God's commandments. Romans 3.23 says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Now what is sin? Sin is any thought, word, or action that violates the commands of God, either by omission, that is to say, omitting or not doing or being what God commands, or by commission, committing the sins of doing or being what God forbids. That is sin. Jesus died on the cross and rose on the third day to pay the penalty of our sins, which is to say, everlasting death and hell. Because we cannot pay that penalty ourselves. Even the slightest sin against an infinitely holy God demands the justice of infinite punishment. That's how it works. If you commit a sin or a crime against something small or unimportant, your sin is small and unimportant. Your punishment, sin, is, is trivial. But the more holy you commit a sin against, for example, you murder a human being, what do we demand of you? The death penalty. You give your own life. Your life is forfeit as a result. If you sin against something, someone infinitely more holy, that is to say God, then your just punishment is infinite punishment. Okay? We cannot pay the penalty because the penalty never ends. It's a credit card debt that you can never pay off. But Jesus did pay it off because he is God. He can pay it off. All we have to do is accept the free gift of salvation. And the only thing we need to do in order to accept this is to believe in Jesus. There is no work that we can do to earn our own salvation. And there is nothing we can do to obligate God to save us. The only thing we can do is trust in God, beg for his mercy, and then accept it as a free gift. Now, God did not have to do this. He did it because he loves us, and he wants to be reconciled to us. John 3.16, very well-known verse in the Bible. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. And then John also writes in 1 John chapter 4, verse 19, we love because God first loved us. It's not that we loved God and then God said, okay, well, you came to love me, I'll love you back. It's that God loved us first and then we loved him. And as a result, we also love each other and our neighbors. Okay? Therefore, Peter, in verse 1 here, says that the audience of his letter is beloved. And he says this again in verse 8 and also in verse 14 and also in verse 17. Okay? It shows the familial relationship that the church has with one another, under God our Father and by, through the adoption uh, of, of God the Father through uh, God the Son, Jesus. Okay? Now, we contrast that to the harsh language of false teachers in chapter 2. He goes from attacking false teachers all throughout chapter 2, dogs, pigs, etc., etc., and then he turns in chapter 3 and says, Now this is, beloved, the second letter that I am writing to you. And he also uh, says that uh, we are your apostles. Okay? Not just the apostles, which is what, what is usually said in the scriptures, but your apostles. And this shows the personal relationship between the apostles and the early believers in the early church. Now on a side note, you are also our beloved. Okay? Us pastors, okay? we 
love you. We are your pastors. Okay? We love you and we care about you. No less than the Apostle Peter loved and cared about all the people that he was writing a letter to. This is the second time that he is writing. Okay? Uh, this is an obvious reference to 1 Peter, this being 2 Peter. Now there is some scholarly debate about whether Peter wrote a, a previous letter that, that wasn't actually captured, uh, wasn't scripture, so it's not preserved for us, or, or even that this letter was not actually written by Peter, but that's beside the point. This uh, reference is to 1 Peter. Okay? And this sentence in verses 1 and 2 draws upon many of the themes and phrases that we heard earlier in the letter. So if we says, I'm stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder, that goes back to chapter 1, where he said, I am always ready to remind you and to stir you up by way of reminder. And when he says, you should remember the words, also in chapter 1 he says, you will be able to call these things to mind that he reminds them of. Okay? And then also, when... I'm going to make this work. Okay. And also... When he says, spoken beforehand from the holy prophets, it goes back to the theme in chapter 1 once again, where he says, we have the prophetic word made more sure, and also that men, that is to say prophets, moved by the Holy Spirit, moved like a sailboat is moved by wind, moved by the Holy Spirit, spoke from God. And when he refers to the commandment of the Lord and Savior, last week we learned that the holy commandment in chapter 2 refers to the commandments, all of the commandments that Jesus gave. Because in the Great Commission, he says, teaching them to obey all that I have commanded, which is to say, all of the words of the Old Testament, the Hebrew Scriptures, the words of prophecy, and the things that he uh, himself taught, and would also reveal through the apostles, through, by the power of the Holy Spirit, and spoken by your apostles. Again, we apostles made known to you the truth and the power and the glory of the coming of Christ. And uh, verse 221, 221, the holy commandment what was handed on to them. Okay? So the applications here are that, well, for us, let's remember that remembering presupposes that you learned it in the first place. Let us be diligent to study at all times the Word of God in the Scriptures, the whole counsel of God. It is good to pick up your Bible and to read it. Okay? It is good to lay aside other earthly, fleshly things that aren't as important, that aren't as everlasting, and to spend time in this, and to learn it, and study it, and to live it, and to love it. Okay? We are woefully undereducated in the Bible in general, but also in particular, the words of the prophets, the words of the Old Testament. Okay? So I exhort you, I encourage you to spend more and more time in this so that you will be able to call to mind the things that you have been taught, the things that you have read, the things that you have understood. But you have to have read and understood them in the first place. Point two on your outline. Mockers are going to come, but Jesus is going to come back. He goes on to, to write in the next couple of verses, Know this, first of all, that in the last days, mockers will come with their mocking, following after their own lusts, and saying, Where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all continues, just as it was from the beginning of creation. Okay, let's first talk about the mockers. Coming on the heels of chapter 2, Peter clearly is referring to false teachers, but not just false teachers, but also those who follow them. People who mock typically mock the truth, including true doctrine. Okay? We learn this in the scriptures. The serpent in the Garden of Eden mocked God's commands, didn't he? Right? He mocked it also with a question, just like is done here. He said, indeed, has God really said you shall not eat from any tree in the garden, which isn't even the, the doctrine anyway. It is the, 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 what, what Satan was doing, what the serpent was doing, was setting up a straw man argument, which is a little bit what's going on here. This isn't actually what is happening. And then last week, 
we read, uh, two weeks ago, we read about Noah and the flood. Now, it doesn't actually say in the biblical account in Genesis chapter 6, uh, 7, and 8 that there were mockers. But it does say, uh, the scriptures do say in chapter 2 that Noah was a preacher of righteousness. And Genesis tells us that the building of the ark took 100 years. So, if Noah is preaching righteousness and the, there was a lot of time to do it, 100 years, and no one else except for his three sons and their four wives came onto the ark eventually, we can pretty much presuppose that during the time that he was preaching righteousness, re preaching repentance, preaching getting on the ark, some people at least were mocking him, right? Right up until they realized that the rain wouldn't stop falling. Also, in, in, uh, two weeks ago, we learned about Sodom and Gomorrah. And in Sodom and Gomorrah, Lot told, uh, eventually escaped with his wife and his two daughters. His wife didn't make it. But his two daughters were engaged to be married. And his future sons-in-law, it tells us in Genesis, uh, thought that he was joking. Okay? Thought that he was joking. So that was probably another form of mockery. And we have uh, forms of mockery. Even today, so many, there's too many to count, but one that sort of came to my mind was something called the Flying Spaghetti Monster. You guys heard of this? This was from several years ago. The Flying Spaghetti Monster, uh, the deity of uh, Pastafarianism. Okay. So this was made up by a young man who wrote to a board of education protesting against the, uh, the, the program of education of creationism and intelligent design in public schools. And he said, well, if you're going to teach creationism and intelligent design, then I should also be able to teach uh, the doctrines of the flying spaghetti monster. Okay? So this is clearly mockery. Right? It's not very nice. It uh, gets a chuckle out of people who you know, are, are like-minded. And it's, uh, it's clearly ridiculous and not meant to be taken seriously. But nonetheless, it is mockery. Secondly, the motivation of the mockers is following after their own lusts. They say that they have solid arguments based on logic, reason, and evidence. And if that were completely true, then we could have intellectually honest conversations. But they are mockers. And they are mockers because they have an axe to grind. They want what they want, whether that is lust for power, fame, wealth, sex, comfort, or any other of the other idols that our sinful hearts hold dear. It's because they have these lusts that they are intellectually dishonest about the truth that confronts them. And furthermore, they hate the idea that we are accountable to a holy God. Romans 14.12 talks about it. 2 Corinthians 5.10 talks about it. People who are in gross sin hate being judged. They hate being judged so much that their hearts are hard toward a God who does, in fact, judge. Their hearts are even hard toward uh, a God who judges, but who also forgives if they would only humble themselves. Now, that all being said, we must also be honest and admit that but for the grace of God, we also would all be still following the lusts of our hearts. It is not so much they, but we. We would all be dead in our sins and transgressions and mockers of the truth if it weren't for the grace of God. We did not do anything to come to our own senses, even though that's how we experience it. It's that God converted us, converted our hearts, and converted our minds. So we have no self-righteousness to stand on. Let's just always remember that. So that when we do encounter mockers, we can reach out with, uh, to them with the love of the gospel. Now let's, next let's talk about the last days. This is a phrase that is right in here in the last days. In the last days is a phrase that refers to the entire time between Jesus' first and second comings. Okay? For you note takers, here are some uh, NT verses for reference, Acts 2.17, 2 
2 Timothy 3.1, Hebrews 1.2, uh, James 5.3, 1 Peter 1.20, there's a lot of them. Okay? They all refer to the last days as being the days from the time of Jesus uh, until he comes back. Now, Jesus' first coming, as most of us know, was 2,000 years ago, what we celebrate at Christmas, the birth of Christ, and what we also celebrate at Easter, the death and resurrection of Christ. Peter and the other apostles wrote only decades after Christ, so they considered their own days the last days. They lived in the expectation that Christ would return at any moment, which, as we will see, is exactly how we should live as well. And so at this point, I want to give you a big picture of what we call redemptive history. This is on your outline. And then uh, a couple weeks ago, I, my sermon title was called Lessons from Redemptive History. Okay, so redemptive history is this. It's not military history. It's not political history, although it includes some political history. It is redemptive history, the history of the redemption of humankind from sinfulness. So if you think of the stage as a, as a timeline, all the way from here, all the way to the other end, and the Bible as the timeline of redemptive history, what we realize is that in Genesis chapter 1 and 2, the creation of earth and humanity, everything is perfect and sinless. Okay? And then in Genesis chapter 3, we have the fall of man in the Garden of Eden. All the way through the arc of redemptive history until the last two chapters of the Bible, Revelation 21 and 22, in which all things are made new. And when all things are made new, we go back to a state of being totally perfect, totally renewed, totally sinless. And all of the chapters, all of this in between in, in our Bibles is sinful humanity and burdened creation. And the arc of redemptive history, the center point of redemptive history is the cross. When Jesus came to make atonement for sins and to start the renewal process. Okay? This is what we see here on this, uh, on this timeline. So God has a plan that he is working out in human history through Israel in the past, church in the present, and restored Israel in the future to establish his kingdom on earth and to bless the peoples of the world through faith, which maximally glorifies God. That is redemptive history. That is a Christian view of history. And as you know, we are in this age right now. Restored Israel in the future has not happened. The last days, which so far have been 2,000 years, is what we call the church age. Okay? And the church age starts with the cross of Christ and ends when the kingdom is restored. Okay? Ends when the kingdom is restored. In Acts 1.6, the disciples asked Jesus right before he is about to, uh, he's already been resurrected. He's about to ascend to heaven. They say, Lord, is it at this time that you are restoring the kingdom to Israel? And then he gives an answer, which we'll cover a little bit later. Okay? But anyway, the point is that he was not restoring the kingdom to Israel at that time. That's what restored Israel is on this timeline. Okay? Right? Now, no one except God knew or to this day knows how long the church age will last. It's been about 2,000 years so far. But Jesus could come back at any time. The, the apostles, the writers of the New Testament, expected, in some cases, that Jesus' second coming would come in their lifetimes. It didn't. But we can also expect that Jesus' second coming will come in our lifetimes. So we need to be ready. We need to be ready. Now, the mocker's mockery is this. Where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all continues just as it has from the beginning of creation. All right, the fathers are the patriarchs of Israel, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They are basically saying, Jesus hasn't come back yet. Everything is the same. So Jesus, therefore, won't be coming back. Again, they started saying this only a few decades after Christ, and now we have been 2,000 years since Christ, so we are still waiting for Christ to come back, and the mockers are still mocking the idea that, Jesus, that 
Jesus will come back. But he will come back to establish his kingdom on earth. Okay, so uh, flip your outline over. Uh, on the other side, there is this other uh, diagram. This one's showing the detail of Jesus' second coming. Now, there is a ton of evidence from the Bible that the uh, end times will unfold in just this way. Uh, there is way too much biblical evidence for me to go into this chart in detail in this morning, but it's all in the Bible. And we will spend more time with this diagram next week when we study the rest of chapter 3 and the conclusion of 2 Peter, especially verses 10 through 13. Now, if you want to read and learn about this yourself, this is the kind of thing that we study and learn about in uh, our church's Del Rey Bible Institute. And in fact, in God's providence, and I see uh, Cameron and Kelsey here and, and Laura Nelson here and, and others in the class, in God's providence, this very week in the Welcome Home class is week six, where we cover the end times. Okay, so there's a lecture on the end times. It's available online. There's a section in our binder that's several pages that goes through all of this in detail with all of the biblical evidence. So if you want to know about that, let me know. And students, of course, that's your assignment, so please do that. Right? All right, so uh, the chart, really briefly. Uh, on the last chart, we had the, uh, the, the cross and the, the crown, and that's the cross here that starts the church age, okay, which was that middle bubble. And then here we have the beginning of the kingdom. So the church age is going to end with something we call the rapture. All people who believe in Jesus will be caught up together with Jesus in the clouds as he descends. And then there is a pause, when, and then a tribulation begins. A tribula the great tribulation, which is spoken about in Revelation uh, chapters 6 through 19, basically, you know, the, the larger chunk of Revelation. And also, uh, Jesus speaks about it in uh, Matthew chapters 24 and 25. Uh, and it is referred to as the 70th week of Daniel. It's not chapter 7, actually. It's chapter 9. Uh, this was the cut and paste. So, it's the, uh, is the tribulation is, is seven years, and it is during the reign of the Antichrist. There's a whole bunch of other things that, ever ha that also happen. And then, and the rapture happens because... The church is spared the tribulation, and that is also evidence from Bible. Uh, but then Christ comes all the way down with the saints uh, in Revelation 19, 11 through 16. Okay? There's a great battle, the battle of Armageddon. The Antichrist is destroyed at that time. There is a resurrection at that time. And then we have restored Israel. So on here, we have restored Israel, the kingdom in the future. This is what we call the millennial kingdom or the millennium, which uh, it'd be kind of sad if this is the only way you heard it. But in Star Wars, you know, we have the millennium falcon. Millennium is a word that means 1,000 years, right? It's like century, except it's 10 centuries. It's one millennia, uh, one millennium. It's the, it's the 1,000 years. Uh, it is a kingdom. Uh, and also saints are going to reign with Christ in this kingdom. And it is talked about uh, a number of times and referred to a thousand years a number of times in Revelation chapter 20. There are other Christian belief systems that are Christian, but they don't believe in a millennium or they believe the millennium is spiritual and not actual. We don't agree with that because uh, we believe that the Bible is literally true when the Bible means to be literally true and Revelation 20 I think, you know, means to be literally true, okay? Then there's the end of all things. Uh, Satan, which is bound during the millennium, is loosed for a short period of time. He uh, creates another uh, cataclysmic rebellion against Jesus, who is reigning from his throne in Jerusalem. There is the judgment of the wicked, and then the eternal state, uh, what we might call, uh, what the Bible also calls the uh, new heavens and the new earth start. Okay? So we have this diagram to help us visualize all of the biblical evidence. Okay? All right, back to the mockers. Here is the mockers' argument. They claim, for ever since the fathers fell asleep, all continues just as it was from the beginning of creation. Okay? Jesus isn't coming back. Basically, what they are saying is God does not divinely intervene in history. He doesn't do this. Okay? Now, we are very familiar with this argument in our day. According to secular, atheistic, 
naturalistic, cosmological theory, there is no God. There was nothing. And then the Big Bang happened for some reason. And all the matter and energy in the universe instantaneously sprang into existence. All this matter and energy formed itself into galaxies and stars and planets because the fundamental forces and constants of the universe, gravity, electromagnetism, the strong nuclear force, the weak nuclear force, the very speed of light, which has a particular speed and is a constant, right? were exactly fine-tuned to what they needed to be in order to support a physical universe because reasons. Right? And then on one particular planet with one particular chemical makeup, a particular distance from one particular sun so as not to be too hot or too cold, a Goldilocks planet, a bunch of chemicals somehow combined themselves because chemicals don't evolve. Okay? and turned into life. And then this one particular group of chemicals called the first life reproduced itself and became more complex and evolved into more and more complex life forms. But instead of the diversity and complexity of life starting from very, very simple and then gradually and slowly and evenly becoming the diversity of life that we see today, that's not what happened. What happened, according to the fossil record, is that there was great simplicity of life for a very, very, very long period of time. And then in a relatively very short period of time, boom, the Cambrian explosion. And then all of the diversity of life happened at that time. And then ever since then, which has been like 500 million years, according to them, there hasn't been much diversity. Not only that, but because the theory is that the physical universe is all that there is, every action of every atom that has, been, uh, that has existed in the physical universe has been set since the Big Bang. In other words, the universe is just a very complicated machine. Which means that the words that you hear coming out of my mouth, which is the vibrations of the air molecules caused by my vocal cords made to move by my central nervous system, which originates somehow with neurons in my brain, okay, had to happen because the universe is just a very complex machine, a very complex setup of dominoes. And every domino that falls was caused to, to fall by the domino before that, and it can't ever do anything else from the beginning of the universe, okay? if that's what you believe. Right? They had to happen. They had to happen. And the fact that you believe what I'm saying, and you don't believe what I'm saying, and you're falling asleep, and you don't care, right? All of those different reactions happens because we are all just dominoes. Okay? There is no truth. There is no falsehood. There is no agency. There is no morality. Because, and there is no will. Forget about free will. There's not will, period. Okay? Because all of this is just a physical machine. That, if he is being intellectually honest, is what the philosophical naturalist atheist must believe. There are so many ginormous leaps of faith in what I just said that must be taken in order to believe that. I don't have that much faith. As Turek and Geisler wrote, I don't have enough faith to be an atheist. But anyway, that's the argument of the mocker of our day. The kind of mocker who mocks us with the flying spaghetti monster. How does Peter answer mockers of his day? By the word of God. Verse 5. For when they maintain this, it escapes their notice that by the word of God, the heavens existed long ago, and the earth was formed out of water and by water, 
through which the world at that time was destroyed, being flooded with water. But by his word, the present heavens and earth are being reserved for fire, kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. Okay. First of all, it escapes their notice. It's actually somewhat better uh, translated by the King James Version, the classic King James Version. They are willingly ignorant of. They are willingly ignorant. Not just passively, uh, I, I miss that. But more that they are willfully ignorant of this. Okay? And again, they are, they are willfully ignorant because they want to follow their lusts. They have an agenda. Okay? Now, Peter builds his argument the same way he builds the argument in chapter 2. He uses examples from the past to show that God is powerful to keep his promises for the future. Okay? So, you know, for this, let's turn all the way to the beginning of creation in Genesis chapter 1. I put a few of these verses uh, in uh, front of you on the slide. But Genesis chapter 1, very beginning of Genesis. Cha Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Okay? All right. By the word of God, the heavens existed long ago. The earth was formless and void, and darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was moving over the surface of the waters. Then God said, let there be light by the word of God. And there was light. God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, darkness he called night. There was morning, there was evening, one day. Verse 6, then God said, by the word of God, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters. Okay? Okay, so there's waters. And let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters, and let it uh, separate the waters from the waters. Okay? So God made the expanse and separated the waters which were below the expanse from the waters which were above the expanse. It was so God called the expanse heaven. Okay, what we, we would call the sky, right? Okay? Sky or space, right? Sky or space, heaven. Right? Not the spiritual heaven, the physical heaven. And there was an evening and there was morning, a second day. Then God, so you've got, the, you've got the, uh, the, the picture here. Then God said, let the waters below the heavens, all right, be gathered into one place and let the dry land appear. And it was so by the word of God. Okay? God called the dry land earth and the gathering of the waters he called seas. And God saw that it was good. Okay, so. This is the first part. This is what Peter is talking about. Again, he's breezing right over this because he assumes that his audience knows what he's talking about. And I, I went to the first 10 uh, verses of, of Genesis 1, you know, just in case uh, we don't. Okay, just stirring up, by, uh, stirring up your sincere hearts by way of reminder. Right. Now, the earth was formed out of water and by water, and then through which the world at that time was destroyed, being flooded with water. Okay, so remember, what we're talking about here is, is Noah and the flood. Now, how is it that a worldwide flood can happen? Because, you know, there's land already, and then, you know, water finds its own level, so there's, and there's seas, so how does it all evaporate into the sky, and then, like, fall, and then, like, cover all the land? So, so this, is, this is why Genesis 1 is important. So, apparently, the theory, you know, the hypothesis goes, we'll have to ask about it later when we get to heaven, but apparently the hypothesis goes that there was a canopy, of water above the sky. And so when the flood happened, God was raining all of that water onto the earth. And it says later in Genesis that uh, then God you know, caused the earth to absorb all the water and blah, blah, blah. So anyway, that's how, that's how that flood happened. So there was a flood, and that's why we don't have a canopy of water above us anymore. Right? And that's also why God was able to put a rainbow in the sky. Because, you know, when you're You've got a canopy over you. You can't see any rainbow. There's no rainbow of sunlight shining through you know, a, a thick canopy of water. But now there can be because now there's clouds and stuff. Okay. All right. So this is what he means by that. Uh, there was a the, the flood. And, he, and by the word of God, behold, even I am bringing the flood of water upon the earth to destroy all flesh which is the, uh, in which is the breath of life from under heaven. Everything that is on the earth shall perish. That's Genesis 6.17. He tells that to Noah. Okay? Uh, being flooded by water. And then, 
by his word. Okay, now, so we have the, the past promises fulfilled, and now we have the future promises to be fulfilled. The present heavens and earth are being reserved for fire, kept for the day of judgment. Okay, being reserved. The physical universe is a pretty complex machine. Okay, but it is not just a complex machine that doesn't have anything behind it. The complex machine has God, who not only created it, but also sustained it. Okay? So Hebrews 1.3 says that God upholds all things by the word of his power. And Colossians 1, which we read at the beginning of service, says that all things hold together in him, in Christ. So, when things are being reserved and kept, it is an active act of God to sustain us. Question one in our catechism says, you know, God is the creator and the sustainer of everyone and everything. That was question two, sorry. Question two says, creator and sustainer of everyone and everything. All right. Then, God's judgment is often portrayed as fire in the scriptures. Okay, Isaiah 29.6. From the Lord of hosts, you will be punished with thunder and earthquake and loud noise, with whirlwind and tempest, and the flame of a consuming fire. Isaiah 66. For behold, the Lord will come in fire to render his anger with fury and his rebuke with flames of fire. For the Lord will execute judgment by fire. Nahum 1.6. Who can endure the burning of his anger? His wrath is poured out like fire. And Malachi 4.1, For behold, the day is coming, the day of the Lord, that is, burning like a furnace, and all the arrogant and every evildoer will be chaff. And the day that is coming will set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts. That's uh, part of the job of the prophets, was to warn ancient Israel and other peoples about the coming judgment. The coming judgment, which we ought to also bear in mind. Now, the bad news is, because we talk about evildoers, right? The bad news is that we are all evildoers. We are all bad persons. A common misunderstanding uh, of, of religion in general, or Christianity specifically, are that there are good people and bad people. And bad, good people go to heaven and bad people go to hell. That is not true. There are only bad people. There are bad people who are forgiven and bad people who are not forgiven. Okay. The truth is that there are only bad people. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Romans 3.23. I said it earlier. Sin is any thought, word, or deed that violates the command of God by omission or by commission. A sin of omission is not doing or being what God commands in his law. A sin of commission is to do or to be that which God forbids. Our first, first father, Adam, sinned in the Garden of Eden. And every human being since that has, has inherited his sinful fallen nature. Therefore, we are completely depraved down to our very core of our being and sinful in every area of our being. Therefore we sin. And what do we deserve because of this? This. Fire. Okay? Everlasting fire in hell. Now let's turn to the last two verses for today to learn in juxtaposition of this bad news, the good news. By the patience of God. Verse 8 and 9. But... Do not let this one fact escape your notice, beloved, that with the Lord one day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years like one day. The Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. Now, the first thing I want to point out is this is the same phrase. Do not let this one fact, escape your notice, which again in the King James Version says, be not ignorant. Okay. Secondly, he calls them once again beloved. 
He loves them. He wants what's best for them. He is asking them to trust him because he brings the word of the Lord. And more importantly than trusting him, Peter, it is to trust the word of God because God loves us and God wants what's best for us. So we ought to trust him because he is all-knowing and all-powerful and completely holy and he is without error in anything he does or says. So he can be trusted. So let us always try to trust him. And when we fail to trust, when we sin, we have a Savior who has paid for all of our sins. We can rely on him and go back to the cross again and again and again and approach the throne of grace with confidence. With the Lord, one day is like a thousand years and a thousand years like one day. This is so exciting. This is so exciting because God is in total control of all time. Okay? He is in control of that arc of redemptive history from the very beginning of the Bible to the very end of the Bible. This phrase, a thousand years is like one day, uh, comes from uh, Psalm 90, verse 4, which uh, Peter is apparently paraphrasing. Psalm 90, verse 4 says, For a thousand years in your sight are like yesterday when it passes by, or as a watch in the night. In other words, time is different for God because he created it and because he is eternal than it is for us who are temporal beings living life one second at a time, one moment at a time, one day at a time. Okay? So for us, things might seem like a long time. But God sees time and sees everything that has happened, will happen for us all, and he knows exactly what is going to happen. And for him, things are, uh, time, time is different. It's like a thousand years or a million years or a billion years just go by you know, in an instant. It is different for God. Okay? That is the point that Peter is trying to make. And his plan includes, uh, sorry, his plan includes uh, what we would consider a delay because he is merciful and patient and everything is going to happen according to his will. Okay? The Lord is not slow about his promise as some count slowness. Okay? In Isaiah 25, you have worked wonders Plans formed long ago with perfect faithfulness. God does what he wants exactly when he wants it. Jeremiah 33, 14. Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will fulfill the good word which I have spoken concerning the house of Israel and the house of Judah. The restored, the restored kingdom, right? Which is what Jeremiah is talking about. And in the New Testament, we uh, looked at this verse earlier, Acts 1, 6. Lord, is it at this time you are restoring the kingdom to Israel? And what is Jesus' answer? Jesus said to them, It is not for you to know the times or epochs which the Father has fixed by his own authority. The time is coming and it will happen exactly when God wants it to happen. We must be ready. Okay? It could happen right now. Okay, it didn't happen right now. But it could happen at any second. Okay? It could happen at any second. And then look at this beautiful part of it. Not wishing for any to perish. Okay? Not wishing for any to perish. Now this is something that we call God's will of command or his revealed will versus his will of decree or his secret will. Okay? Now his will of command is that which is out there. And, and everybody you know, knows to obey it, but you know, frankly doesn't obey it. Right? So it would be like the Ten Commandments. You shall not murder. And then, you know, of course, we have murders. Right? So it's his will that no one murders anyone. But his secret will, his will of decree, is actually that things do, in fact, happen. And Genesis 50 talks about it as what you intended for evil, uh, God worked out for good. Right? So God has a secret uh, will that is to be revealed. Now, his his Revealed will, uh, uh, his will of command is for no one 
to perish. That's why the word of the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, is for all to hear. Okay? Only some will believe by God's grace. But all should hear it. And it is our job, believers, fellow believers, to share this good news with people. Okay? So there's a, a little bit in there. And then, lastly, uh, repent. Hold on. Boop. Yep. Okay, repent. Repent. So this kind of takes us back to this repent for the end is near kind of signs. And we've heard this word repent, and we hardly ever hear of it uh, in any other uh, context except for uh, in Christianity. So what does repent mean? Repent means to turn away. Specifically to turn away from your sins and to turn to, turn to God. Okay? In Ezekiel chapter 18, God says, Therefore I will judge you, O house of Israel, each according to his conduct, declares the Lord God, Yahweh. Repent and turn away from all your transgressions so that your iniquity may not become a stumbling block to you. Cast away from you all your transgressions which you have committed and make yourselves a new heart and a new spirit. For why will you die, O house of Israel? For I have no pleasure in the death of anyone who dies, declares the Lord God. And yet people do die. So we have to like, like balance it for ourselves. Like the, the idea that God does all things according to his pleasure. And yet he also says that he holds no pleasure for anyone who dies. And that's why he urges everyone through his prophet, Ezekiel, therefore repent and live. Therefore repent and live. And, it, and of course, not just the Old Testament prophets. Uh, it, there is also Jesus himself. Jesus began to preach and say, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Mark uh, 1, 14, 15. Jesus came into Galilee preaching the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. And he also said in Luke, unless you repent, you will likewise perish. Repent. Our society is so bound up in permissiveness and in self-governing authority and self-autonomy that we don't want to repent. Uh, I dare say that many of us in our room, when confronted with sin, don't really want to repent. Okay? I've been in way too many counseling sessions. I've been in way too many uh, arguments in my wife or my own prideful heart you know, doesn't actually want to repent when she calls me on it. So I'm with you. We are all in this together. We should read this and believe it together and encourage one another to repent. Okay, now, the you in here, being patient to you. The you in here refers to anyone who is saved or will be saved. Okay? He's patient toward you. So he is actually waiting, in some sense, on everyone who will come to faith. Not everyone will, but the ones who will, he is patient waiting for us to come to faith. If you are saved already, then, like I just said, you still have repenting to do. Okay? Martin Luther wrote in his 95 Theses, Thesis number one, when our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, commanded us to repent, he meant that the entire life of the Christian should be one of repentance. And if you are not saved yet, then come to him. Come to him. He is gracious to forgive. There is no punishment or condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. He already knows what you've done anyway. Nothing can be hidden from God. You will burn forever if you don't believe in Jesus. So why not come to him? Come to the throne of grace. Accept the free gift of salvation. It is true. It is going to happen. So come. And believe in Jesus, please. There is everlasting hell for those who don't believe. But in Jesus, there is abundant life forevermore. So come and believe. Which takes us to the end of the passage. And back to our takeaways. Which is, Jesus is coming back. Okay? The Word of God says so. Whatever the details... Right? 
I didn't actually cover this, but we, we cover this in, in week six. Premillennialism, postmillennialism, pre-tribulational rapture, mid-tribulational rapture, uh, post-tribulational rapture. Whatever order, amillennialism, whatever you think is happening, is going to happen uh, according to your Christian tradition, we all believe in one thing, that Jesus is coming back. Okay? And also, our takeaway always has to be that God is gracious and patient. But he has also fixed times by his own authority. So the end is coming. The end is coming. Jesus is coming back. There, we don't have unlimited time. Therefore, we should repent. And we should always be ready. We should be ready at any moment. Because as we are going to learn about next week, and as you can read ahead for yourself, the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night at a time you do not expect. And therefore, we should tell others the good news as well. Okay? The good news as well. Um, one commentator wrote it this way. Michael Green is surely right to add that the logical corollary of this verse is that Christians should use the time before the second coming for the preaching of the gospel. Telling others of God's patience with them. Okay. That is exactly what we should do. So brothers, sisters, have the gospel on your lips. Tell people the good news of Jesus Christ. As we leave this place, the outside world, outside these walls, are our mission field. We don't have to be sent out as missions, as we have sent out our beloved Marlon and Jimena. But we can ourselves be missionaries. We live in Los Angeles. The world, the nations have come to us, are coming to us. They land every moment at LAX. They come to us. We can reach out to our neighbors, our friends, our loved ones, and share with them the gospel so that none may perish. So as we declare the gospel in that way, right now we are also going to declare the gospel in another way, which is to say the taking of the Lord's Supper. So you can take your mask down momentarily. Uh, I'm going to call Landon to come up here to, uh, to lead us in songs of worship as we close the worship service. Uh, Jesus said that this was a picture of the gospel because on the night that he was betrayed, the Lord Jesus took the bread and he said that this is his body given for us. Okay? This is a picture of Jesus making a sacrifice for us, paying the penalty of our sin in our place, an atoning sacrifice. So we take this wafer. Let's take it together. And likewise, after the meal, he took the cup, the wine, and he said, this cup is my blood in the new covenant. The new covenant, covenant, the promise that God will fulfill by the power of his Holy Spirit through his Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, that there will be forgiveness for all who believe and new heavens and a new earth and everlasting life for all who believe. Death is defeated. Satan is defeated. Evildoers will be defeated and cast into the lake of fire, which burns forever. But there is forgiveness in Christ Jesus our Lord. That is the new covenant. Let's drink this together. For as often, the scriptures say, as you eat of the bread and drink of the cup, you declare the Lord's death until he comes. That is the gospel, ladies and gentlemen. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you, God, for your gospel. We thank you, God, that we are not bound by the bad news. We do not forever have to be slaves to our own sin, but you have come to set us captives free. And we thank you, God, that you have given us your word to warn us and to teach us of these things. And we thank you, God, that you have given us apostles and teachers to... Uh, to, to give us your word and to teach us your word. We thank you for the holy prophets of long ago. 
We pray for your mercy, dear God. We pray for your patience. But also we pray for the Maranatha. We pray that you would send your son, the Lord Jesus, to come, dear God. That is the blessed hope that we have in the future. And we pray that in the meantime, we would be found faithful. That as we leave this place, we would have the gospel on our lips and be sharing it with all who are perishing. For it is the power of you unto salvation for all who believe. We pray these things in the name, the mighty, incredible, powerful name of Jesus. Amen.